And we do pray for this situation that's in our world and nation. You're in control and in charge of that, and we acknowledge that. And we're thankful to be your people to be able to come together. We do pray for your protection, for your wisdom and direction. Help us today as we continue to think about other challenges and other threats to uh, the world that are of a different nature. And equip us, Lord, for service in your kingdom and at every point. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think that's a good way to start, is to think about all the threats that we face. There's, of course, viruses, uh, illness, sickness that threaten all of us all the time. Uh, but also there are ideas, and those go viral as well. And those ideas can be just as damning and certainly a threat to eternal life. And so we want to be equipped to deal with all the challenges that come our way. We have challenges that are within ourselves, our own sins, uh, things that threaten us. So uh, we want to always be conforming to the image of Christ, submitting to the authority and sovereignty of God, recognizing that he's in control of all of it and that we serve him. And... Uh, so I love the uh, uh, quote that I sent out yesterday from Luther uh, where he says, if God wants to kill me, he knows how to find me. <laughs> uh, he knows right where I am. So that won't be a problem for him, but he also knows how to preserve us. So, uh, all right, let's continue. We're on part two today of talking about, in this uh, general subject of choosing sides, choosing worldviews, uh, unqualified persons, this idea that, uh, in this dualism that has emerged, this form of dualism, dualism's been around for a long time, the dividing of spiritual and secular or body and mind or uh, a lot of different ways that it gets uh, labeled, but essentially the same idea. It's really been around for a very long time, and it certainly creeped into the Christian church and uh, even into our own thinking because when, when there are ideas that are out there, particularly when they are taken up by the culture, uh, even when we're not consciously aware of it, they tend to seep into us. They get in our bones, and, and they just become background. They become the assumptions of our culture, and therefore we have to self-consciously approach them, come to them, and, and begin to unlearn what we've been taught, what we've picked up. As uh, Schaefer, Francis Schaeffer said, most of us get our worldviews uh, ironically, the way we get, I guess we could say the way we get coronavirus or the way we get the measles uh, was what he said. Uh, we just pick it up somewhere. Uh, and that's how we, most people get their worldviews. But we don't want to get our worldview that way. We want to get it in a self-conscious way. We want to get it from the Bible. We want God to tell us how to think about ourselves and the world we live in uh, and to go from there. So, we're in this battle of ideas and remembering again that the ideas themselves are deadly. And, and boy, that's certainly true with these ideas because we've seen how deadly it is for unborn babies. We began to talk about how deadly it is in regard to older people or sick people uh, with euthanasia and other, other ways that this starts to get applied. And one of the ways it happens is we separate the idea of the human body, which is alive uh, and, and biological, but if it's just a machine, if it's just uh, if it's something that doesn't have value in itself, 
what is it that gives us value? And the argument is, well, we have to become persons. So keep in mind, this is very arbitrary. It's just kind of an idea. If you're, you're always looking for an explanation to justify what you want to do, then uh, very creative people come up with those ideas, a way of explaining things, and oftentimes they're just snatched out of thin air and plugged in because it provides some justification for the thing that we're wanting to justify. So the concept of personhood was first explicitly proposed uh, in 1968 by a group of 13 medical doctors who, you won't be surprised, were professors at Harvard Medical School. They offered what came to be called the, the Harvard criteria for establishing when a patient has died. In the process, says journalist Dick uh, Teresi, quote, the Harvard criteria switched the debate from biology to philosophy. You're dead not when your heart can't be restarted. You can no longer breathe or your cells die, but when you suffer a loss, and we're quoting here, a loss of personhood. The problem is that the concept of personhood is not based on any kind of objective reality. Again, it's kind of snatched out of thin air. Most people think brain death is established by an EEG, an electroencephalogram. Is that, is that correct? Am I using the right term? Okay. Um, but that's not true. Back in 1971, it was discovered that some patients diagnosed as brain dead uh, still had brain waves, so the requirement of an EEG was eliminated. The measures that doctors now use to determine death very widely. By the way, I see a bunch of people fanning themselves. Can, Gary, can you check the air? It does seem a little stuffy in here. Um, so, um, so here's the deal. Essentially, a patient is no longer a person whenever the attending physician says so. So one of the other issues is in, in this argument, in this debate that goes back and forth, liberals often say, if you're against abortion, don't have one. If you're against assisted suicide, don't do it. But don't impose your views on everybody else. And maybe on the surface that sounds like a reasonable thing to do. But what they fail to understand is that every social practice, or as I've pointed out, every law, in fact, uh, rests on certain assumptions of what the world is like. It's based upon a worldview, and it always is imposing someone's worldview. Always. And so when a society accepts the practice, it will absorb that worldview that justifies the practice. That's why issues like abortion and euthanasia are not really matters purely of private individuals making personal choices. They involve deciding which worldview, are, are, which worldview is going to ch- uh, shape our communal, um, our communal life. So we grasp the connection more clearly when we consider other issues. You don't like murder? Well, then don't kill anybody. You don't like slavery? Then don't own slaves. But don't tell me that I don't have that choice. Now, see, this is a, in logic called a reductio, reductio ad absurdum. 
It's where you take an argument and you just show its absurdity. If we carry it out and apply it across the board, immediately it becomes obvious how absurd the argument is. No one makes those arguments about murder and slavery, right? We understand that granting private individuals the right to murder and enslave people inescapably implies a worldview, one that says that some people's lives are expendable and not worthy of legal protection. So in the same way, accepting abortion or euthanasia inescapably implies personhood theory, and that says some people's lives are expendable, not worthy of legal protection, and when that worldview is absorbed by the culture, it has life and death consequences ultimately for everyone. Any cutoff point becomes arbitrary. So I, I used to say this in arguments on abortion. So nowadays, of course, they, it's been bumped the, the time. Now we, we're talking infanticide nowadays, after birth abortion, abortion post-birth abortions. Uh, that's an absurdity in itself. But if when does life begin? Is it a minute before birth or a minute before that or a minute before that or a minute before or a second before that? You know, that's the problem. And, and again, in logic, it's the... Uh, the fallacy of the beard. How many whiskers does it take to make a beard? Um, at what point does that occur? Um, and so any cutoff point becomes arbitrary. The dehumanizing effects, though, put us all at risk. When Christians argue for the truth of a biblical worldview, they're seeking to protect human rights and the dignity of every person. Now, in that two-story thinking, human embryos are merely biological entities, not persons. Therefore, they may be destroyed without any moral significance. Um, If a utilitarian calculation suggests some practical benefit to society, we're going to save money. We're going to use these aborted fetuses for research to save other lives. There's all kinds of justifications that may go on. Many people have come to accept the idea that in the search for a new medical cures, human embryos may be sown, harvested, uh, patented, and sold as if they were just some other kind of natural resource. So if we reject that two-story dualism, then personhood is inextricably linked to being biologically human at every stage of development. So again, these worldviews, you've got to make a choice. Which one is the truth? Destroying an embryo is morally akin... If, if there is no... In other words, to be human, to be physically alive is to be a person, to be a human being unified together. If that's the case then destroying an embryo is morally akin to killing an adult. All the arguments against abortion apply equally to destroying embryos in the lab. Even more problematic is embryo research uh, typically involves creating human life with the direct intention of destroying it. Even our language reflects the shift in this worldview. Uh, Ancient Israel, stressing the transmission of life from father to child, said that a father begets children. The Christian worldview, impressed with the primacy of the creator in the generation of life, uses words like procreate, to procreate. 
And what do moderns do? We use the language of the machine and the factory to reproduce. When we move the process to the laboratory and talk about reproductive technologies, the emphasis is on treating life as a product that we are free to master and to reshape. And those who make human beings in vitro feel also entitled to unmake them. to treat them as products of technology, objects at our disposal. And so life then is reduced to a marketable commodity. So what about harvesting aborted babies for their body parts? Once we have, you know, if we say that's a baby, that's a human being, that's a person uh, creating the image of God, then the thought of that is... Um, as Schaefer would say at that point, from a biblical worldview, that's unthinkable. So what we have to do is we have to change the definitions. He who defines wins. So if we can change the definitions of human and person, and we can divide those out, then we can justify the thing that we want to do. Once we have dehumanized fetuses as objects, then it's natural to ask, why not get some benefit from them? Uh, just as we recycle plastic bags and glass bottles to gain benefit from other waste products. In other words, we're going to throw these in the garbage anyway. Why not get some good out of them? Once the idea of human strip mining is accepted, the next step is outright, the outright sale of fetal organs. Bioethicist Jacob Apple argues this. If a woman has the fundamental right to terminate a pregnancy a fundamental right, she does, to terminate a pregnancy. Why not the right to use the products of the terminated pregnancy as she sees fit? They're her products, right? Why not allow her to gain some economic benefit? Many women would likely use the proceeds of such sales to finance college educations or to help raise other children. Again, in logic, this is called the slippery slope fallacy. So, or to use the old uh, argument of the camel's nose in the tent, once you let this argument in, pretty soon the whole camel is in the tent, not just his nose. Uh, Apple ends by predicting this. Someday, if we are fortunate, scientific research may make possible farms of artificial wombs breeding fetuses for their organs. Of course, Planned Parenthood is way ahead of all of us on this. By the way, I noticed because I was looking at some articles on that, you know, the, the group that did the undercover work videoed them doing all this, selling body parts. There are all kinds of articles out there saying that was a hoax and that the videos were doctored. And, and this is just all political propaganda to cover up this horrific thing that's going on even as we speak. Uh, so keep that in mind. When you go out there, you just flood the Internet uh, with articles that claim that the videos were doctored, edited. Now, I'd like if you've watched any of those, I'd like to know how you could possibly edit those. I mean, you have them saying, you know, talking about the, the cost and the price of the fetal body parts. Um, and, and so uh, it is, uh, it's, again, just... 
you're supposed to read the headlines and move on, and there's nothing to see here, folks. Nothing to see here. There is also the problem of the status of surrogate mothers who are reduced to rent a womb. So journalist Julie Bindle, who herself identifies as a lesbian, writes this, quote, The accelerating boom in surrogacy for gay couples represents a disturbing slide into the brutal exploitation of women who usually come from the developing world and are often bullied or pimped into selling their wombs to satisfy the selfish whims of wealthy gay and lesbian Westerners. This cruelty is accompanied by epic hypocrisy. People from Europe and the USA who would shudder at the idea of involvement in human or sex trafficking have ended up indulging in a grotesque form of reproductive trafficking. Then there is, again, this really has tentacles. You know, we started out with abortion and euthanasia. Uh, now we're talking about uh, other types of reproductive activity that kills people. Uh, the run a womb, baby farming, body parts. There's also a movement called transhumanism, which is another is a fancy new name for eugenics. Um, we're going to create a superhuman. A relatively new movement then adopts this two-story secular ethic. The logic goes like this: since humans are nothing special, why not use technology to create a new stage of life beyond humanity? Transhumanists say it's time to take charge of evolution through genetic engineering. They argue that the human life, human life as it exists today is merely one step in an endless evolutionary chain, uh, a chance configuration of cells that will be surpassed, of course, in the next stage of evolution. Why not speed the process up? Uh, and waxing poetic philosopher John Gray writes that humans are, quote, only currents in the drift of genes. If that's all we are, or as uh, I like to quote from Star Trek, I think it was Dr. Spock, right? We're ugly bags of mostly water. Um, if that's all we are, then why not? Transhumanism zealously promotes the vision of a bioengineered utopia in which we will be liberated from our human limitations. It promises that we're moving toward a, quote, post-human future when wealthy parents will be able to afford genetic improvements to, uh, so extensive that they will literally create a new race. But isn't that, isn't that eugenics? And didn't we witness the tragic results of eugenics under the Nazi regime? To avoid any unsavory association, though, with Nazism, transhumanists stress that the new eugenics will be consumer-based. Parents will be empowered by technology to choose their offspring's genetic traits. Choice. <laughs> the pro-choice crowd is the key tenet of modern liberalism. Magically, that makes everything morally acceptable as long as it is your free choice. We want absolute freedom to what? 
to do what Eve wanted to do. That is, you decide good and evil for yourself. We're not going to have anybody tell you what's right and wrong. You choose. In reality, however, the new eugenics will be as dangerous to liberty as the old eugenics was. Nick Bostrom, a leading transhumanist at Oxford, these are not, you know, some guy living in a cabin out in the woods somewhere. This is a professor at Oxford says, human nature is, quote, a work in progress, a half-baked beginning that we can learn to remold in desirable ways. But who's going to have the power to decide which ways are desirable? That's always the issue. Is it reasonable to expect power of that magnitude to remain in the hands of consumers, the parents? No, never does. Not that that would be okay, but that's another lie. Once we deny that humans have unique dignity just for being human, we have opened the door to tyranny. As philosopher Mortimer Adler warns, quote, groups of superior men will be able to justify their enslavement, exploitation, or even genocide of inferior human groups on factual and moral grounds akin to those that we now rely on to justify our treatment of the animals we harness as beasts of burden. The the Cartesian dualism of the mind as a separate entity controlling the body will be worked out socially as there will be a class of mental workers and a class of physical labor workers. Somebody's got to do the heavy lifting. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Abolition of Man, sums up the problem in one of his most unforgettable lines What we call man's power over nature turns out to be a power exercised by some men over other men with nature as its instrument. Finally, there are the transhumanists who hope to transcend the body altogether. I've said many times, uh, Google, Facebook, and Microsoft all scare me far more than the government. Um, there's a lot going on that we should be concerned about. Uh, Ray Kurtzwill, Google's director of engineering, hopes that advances in artificial intelligence will enable us to download the brain to a computer, making possible a kind of digital immortality. In a culture that demeans and disparages the flesh and blood body, the Bible's high view of the material world is one of the reasons it's good news. The message of Christianity does not start with salvation. It starts with creation. What God created has intrinsic value and worth, and it's worth saving. Richard Rorty says that due to Darwin, we no longer accept the idea of creation. Therefore, we're no longer morally bound to maintain that everyone who is biologically human has equal dignity. And the implications of this are clear. Once a culture abandons the conviction that all humans are created in God's image, 
Human rights are up for grabs. Any category of humans is fair game to be excluded or even eliminated, and that's why the stakes of this debate are so high. Again, I'll just point out what uh, Senator Schumer did recently on the steps of the Supreme Court, where he threatened two of the most recently appointed Supreme Court justices that if they were to rule against the rights to abortion, that they would pay a high price and that they would come after them. And that was to a mob of people who had gathered there that this leader of the Senate, the minority leader of the Senate, was making those kinds of statements publicly because they understand that the stakes are high. As Wesley Smith writes, quote, if human life does not matter simply and merely because it's human, this means that moral worth becomes subjective and a matter of who has the power to decide. When we say subjective, it just becomes a matter of your opinion versus my opinion. So now who's going to win? Whoever has the biggest stick. Or the, old golden, the, the other golden rule, he who has the gold makes the rules. Who has the power? And we already know what happens then. He says, history shows that once we create categories of differing worth, those humans denigrated by the political power structure as having less value are exploited, oppressed, and killed. Many slaveholders argued that Africans were less than fully human and then sold, whipped, hunted, raped, and killed them. Nazi propaganda dehumanized Jews, calling them, quote, rats and the vermin of mankind, then murdered six million of them. In the Red Terror, Lenin called whole categories of people former persons, or more colorfully, bloodsuckers, vampires, parasites, and class enemies. That made it easier to ship them off to concentration camps or just to shoot them. You understand, hundreds of millions, I mean, we're, we're talking right now about a pandemic with a virus and thousands perhaps dying. A hundred million people were killed by their governments in the last century. A hundred million or more in a hundred years by their governments all in the name of what's good for the people. In 1994, in the Rwandan massacre, the Hutus were incited to violence by government radio addresses calling the Tutsis cockroaches that must be exterminated. He who defines wins. Because of Darwin, many people no longer have a moral basis for universal human rights, and so we should expect to see the logical consequences played out in the denial of human rights to those deemed to be non-persons. The public still largely takes for granted that infanticide and euthanasia are morally wrong because they still have a Christian hangover in our country. That's good, but that hangover is starting to wear off that capital is starting to be depreciated, but they forgot, so they've, and they've forgotten where the idea came from. I see this very much where 
if you go back three generations and everybody's going to church and still singing the hymns, I've said this about um, United Methodist Church, by and large, which is kind of has left the faith, but they still sing the old hymns. They still sing Amazing Grace. So there's still a remnant there of uh, the truth. And so what happens, though, after about three generations, uh, the grandkids stopped going to church. They still they were all baptized, and they all, if you ask them, are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. If you suggest they're not, they'll get mad. How dare you uh, judge me? Um, but they've long since ceased knowing the Bible or what it says or caring what it says because the Bible is old-fashioned. And so... Historian O.M. Bakey argues that it was Christianity that made these moral views nearly universal in the West. In his book, When Children Became People, Bakey explains that in ancient Greece and Rome, children were considered non-persons. So this isn't new. Ancient society was organized in what we can visualize as concentric circles. A circle and a circle, it just gets wider and wider, more and more circles and at the center were freeborn adult males, and they they had the most value. Other people were valued depending on how similar they were to that model. Women, foreigners, slaves, and children. Literature from the classical world described children in tones of contempt, using adjectives like weak and fearful and irrational. This demeaning of children had concrete consequences. Not surprising, it led to a cold and a callous view of children. Abortion was widespread. Unwanted children were abandoned or left exposed outside to die of hunger or to be devoured by wild animals. Children were treated roughly because it was considered, and it was considered normal to beat them. In Rome, fathers even had the legal right to kill their own children for any reason. A negative view of children also contributed to a low view of women. The very fact that women are more involved in child-rearing and more likely to develop emotional attachments to children was taken as a sign of weakness on their part. Bakey sums it up this way, children and slaves were the father's property, just material object, and to a very large extent he could treat his wife, his children, and other household members as he pleased, without any fear of legal consequences. That included the legal right to sexually abuse their slaves, both male and female, adult and children. Brothels specializing in sex slaves, including children, were legal and thriving businesses. Abandoned babies were often rescued and then forced into sexual slavery. Romans who owned young slaves even hired them out to those brothels as a little extra income on the side. It was an expression of social status. Most sexual acts were considered permissible as long as they involved a person of higher status dominating a person of lower status. This is the culture into which the Christian church was born. And we forget this. We're Christians and we forget this story. We forget that we, as God's people, were the light of the world, the salt of the earth, that exposed darkness, that preserved the decaying culture around them. 
This is the culture in which Jesus shocked his contemporaries by treating children not as contemptible, but as valuable. He said, see to it that you do not look down on one of these little ones. Whoever welcomes one child like this in my name welcomes me. Jesus even held up children as a positive paradigm for adults to emulate. Unless you are converted and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom. Let the little children come to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. No one before had stood up and set up children as a positive model for adults. The church fathers wrote extensively on Jesus' words, puzzling over what they meant in a culture where a high view of children was a complete novelty. This was a brand new idea. Eventually, as Christians gained political influence in the Roman Empire, they succeeded in getting laws passed, outlaw abortion and infanticide. They also passed laws granting government aid to poor families who didn't have the means to raise their children so they would not be tempted to abandon them and expose them. Yet the custom of exposure was not ended by just passing laws. It continued to be practiced until the clergy finally persuaded parents to give up their babies at the door of the church instead, which gave rise to the first orphanages. We could go on about how Christianity influenced the world with schools and hospitals. You know why there are so many hospitals with names like Presbyterian Hospital or Baptist Hospital or Catholic Hospitals? Why? Christians led the way in health care in orphanages, in taking care of the poor, in soup lines, in all kinds of ways that we went out and began to tackle these big social issues. Now they've been taken over in many cases by the government, regulated by the government, so that now we as a church don't think about those things as much. The government's going to take care of us. They're our savior. They'll take care of us from cradle. The government realized the church was gaining power because of all the things they were doing for people. And so they came along and said, hey, we're going to do that from now on. And to pay for it, we will confiscate your income uh, through taxes and higher taxes uh, so that it becomes burdensome. We're going to take your money to help you. In the Christian church, we tithed. We did that uh, with love offerings and with tithes, which were gifts to God. And then those things were used to help others. But anyway, that's another story, um, but an important one. So Jesus himself basically was scandalous in the world into which he was born and lived. Modern Christians need to recover an appreciation of the uniqueness of the Christian worldview. Since we were toddlers in Sunday school, we have sung the song, Jesus Loves the Little Children. We no longer realize how radical Christianity was when it first taught the value of children. Ultimately, it was Jesus' own life and death that destroyed the underlying notion that the value of life depends on social status. After all, the God who made heaven and earth humbled himself first to become a child, He lived a life of poverty and weakness, and then he submitted to death, even death on the cross. 
And we are so used to seeing the cross as an object of jewelry or surrounded by flowers and stained glass that most of us no longer realize that in ancient Rome, crucifixion was considered to be the most barbaric form of execution that was reserved for the lowest and the most reviled criminals, mostly slaves and political rebels. It was the ultimate form of humiliation and shame, something not even to be mentioned in polite company. The execution of Jesus was therefore considered an appalling scandal. And by submitting to such hideous humiliation, I want you to remember, what could Jesus have done in that situation? And the answer is whatever he wanted to. But he submitted to this. He utterly destroyed differences in social status. Christians began to proclaim the radical message that basic human rights do not depend on status or the or the power or or your power or the stage of life you're in. At the foot of the cross, the poor, the slave, the oppressed, the young, the weak, they're all equal to the rich and the powerful. Rights from the start then excuse me, right from the start then, the early Christians viewed children as complete and valuable human beings. One result, says Bakey, was that the Christian parents practiced a much, quote, greater involvement in upbringing than was generally the case in pagan families. In contrast to wealthy Romans who often turned the care of their children over to servants and nurses, the church fathers urged parents to raise their own children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. In the 4th century, John Chrysostom wrote, quote, Let everything take second place to care for our children, our bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In all these ways, Christianity invented a novel concept of childhood, a new mindset that regarded children as persons who were to be valued, cherished, cared for, and so forth. The practices of pre-Christian society signal the direction that our post-Christian society is on a path to follow. We know where this is going. It's right before us. You don't have to be a genius to see how this is playing out. As the world rejects the biblical ethic, it loses not only the basis for human rights generally, but also the basis for human care of children. Social critics note that practices like contraception, abortion, and artificial reproduction are already creating an attitude that having a child is a lifestyle choice, an accessory to enrich adult lives and to meet adult needs. Take away the Christian worldview of childhood and there's no guarantee that our society will continue to offer any special protection to children down the road. You can't devalue life here and then expect to have a high view over here. It is an irrational thing and eventually those irrationalities play out. One side or the other wins. All right. I think we'll stop there for this morning. Any comments or questions or thoughts about any of this? Yes, sir.